Well, we are continuing our series in First Peter. Uh, last week, we started this series by saying that theologians and pastors, uh, both past and present, have said that First Peter is one of the most important books of the Bible. And by extension, it makes it one of the most important letters ever written. And Peter addresses his audience in this letter as the elect exiles. So we have the title of the series, Letters to the Exiles. Now, being in a state of exile or feeling like strangers, feeling like foreigners, that is a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. Think back to Abraham and Sarah. They were constantly on the move. They were scared of their surroundings because they had left their home, and they even had to lie to protect themselves. At least they felt like they had to lie because they were strangers. They were exiles. But they weren't just exiles. They were also elect. They were chosen by God. They were precious in his sight. He even calls Abraham a friend, a friend of God. Or think about the nation of Israel. Think about them as they were enslaved in the nation of Egypt. They were taken advantage of. They were treated harshly. Or think of Israel whenever they were literal exiles in the land of Assyria and Babylon. They were prisoners. They were displaced from their homeland, from their customs, and their entire way of life. But in the sight of God, they were not just strangers and foreigners. They were his choice possession. They were precious. And today, as his church, we are strangers. We are foreigners and we are exiles. Last week, I shared how the early church, people thought of them as baby-eating cannibals because they were always talking about eating the body and blood of Jesus, which was very weird to the culture, and they had a radical spirit of adoption. They would take kids in the streets and bring them into their homes, so they were accused of being cannibals. There's plenty of examples throughout church history where the church has been thought of as strange, and even today, the church is treated as exiles. Uh, I lived in Thailand for a while doing some missions work, and there was a testimony given by a convert, uh, one of my students, and she said that when she converted out of Buddhism into Christianity, she really had to wrestle with this conversion because she was a Thai person, and Thais are either Buddhist or Muslim, and they, they see those connections to their religion as part of their national identity. So for her to convert to Christianity was not simply choosing a religion, She was being exiled from her nation. And some of the converts were exiled from their own family. Uh, Carmen and I have some friends or or acquaintances that are studying in the United States. Uh, The wife is doing a PhD, and she has converted from uh, Islam. She's from the Middle East. Her and her husband converted out of Islam, and now they cannot return to their home country. Uh, one of my friends was the, the minister at the service where they were converted. Uh, he was, was preaching, and he, he had uh, printed out the manuscript of his sermon and, and put it in the, the pulpit. And then whenever he gets up to preach, he takes out the manuscript, and he realizes it's the wrong manuscript. So he said that he bumbled through the sermon. It was horrific. He was trying to stick to, to the scripture passage that was read, but his notes were all messed up. He said it was horrible. He was sweating. And now you know why I have my computer up here. If I have the wrong notes, I can just change it out. But what this lady and her husband said is that during this awkward and bumbling sermon, their hearts were beating faster than they had ever beaten before, and they knew this was the true religion. 
But to become a baptized Christian meant they could no longer return to their country. They were exiles. And in Western countries like the United States, we have our own challenges. The society around us feels like they have moved beyond religion, like they have moved beyond God. But in fact, they have replaced God and religion with themselves and their own pursuit of pleasure. Last week, the sermon was titled, Pressing Into Our Salvation, which is a major theme in 1 Peter. The title of this week's sermon is Pressing Into Our Community. But it's not separate from last week's title, Pressing Into Our Salvation. They go together. The gospel is foremost about Christ, not ourselves. And secondarily, it's about humanity, but not necessarily individuals. Did you see some of the collective language that was read this morning from our passage? It calls the people of God a nation. A nation is usually thought of as more than one people, but as I was Googling nations of one, there's actually a new song called A Nation of One. It's sung by people who are fed up with society. They don't want any restrictions. They want to be by themselves. Well, this is a description of hell, being completely isolated and by yourself. A nation is communal. You need more than one person. And as exiles, we are called to a new national identity. Other language in this passage, it talks about us as a priesthood, a plurality of priests, a people, and parts that go into a house. So yes, the gospel saves individuals, but not so that they can remain individuals. The gospel takes disparate parts and makes them work together. The gospel takes enemies and turns them into family members. The gospel takes those who are no people and turns them into a people. It makes them into a community. So, how do we press into our community? Well, a community is something that must be built. So, as we talk about pressing into a community, I want us to picture building a community. And literally, I want us to picture making a building. Uh, Not something simple like a shed or even a house. I want us to picture constructing a Gothic cathedral, the biggest you've ever seen or imagined, or as the text says, a spiritual cathedral. And to build the spiritual cathedral, we're going to see that we need four things to build it. We need materials, we need a builder, we need a blueprint, and we need a purpose. Materials, builder, blueprint, and purpose. So with that, let's jump into 1 Peter. You can open your Bibles if you'd like or your Bible app. It's found on page 1014, 1014 of the Bibles in the pew. So to build or to press into our community, we must prepare the best materials. Prepare the best materials. Take a look at chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3, the first Six or seven verses there. Now, building a house requires all sorts of materials. You need thousands of things. You need, you know, cement, you need wood, you need nails and shingles and siding and windows and paint. Uh, I have never built a house, but one of my first jobs was on a construction cleanup crew. Uh, I would drive around with somebody in a dump truck and we would haul away this construction waste. But my favorite part of the job is when I got to go to the job site by myself. I was too young to drive a dump truck, but they would let me, uh, believe it or not, they would let me burn 
uh, rubbish from the construction site. So as a 16-year-old, I would have like four or five different fires going with plywood and shingles and all sorts of stuff. And you'd be terrified to know two things. Uh, they actually let 16-year-olds uh, do that. And secondly, a lot of stuff that goes into the house is extremely flammable. Uh, it was one of my, my favorite jobs. I got paid to burn things as a teenager, and uh, oftentimes I fantasize about going back <laughs> to that job. But unlike our houses or even our churches, the spiritual cathedral does not require many materials. The text just gives us two things, and these materials are not found at Home Depot or Lowe's. The first material for a building community, pure souls. Our souls are like bricks or stones for this spiritual cathedral of community. The cathedral doesn't require any soul. It needs pure souls. And how do we purify our souls? Take a look at verse 22. It's a little bit shocking. It says, by your obedience to the truth. By your obedience to the truth, you purify your souls. Now, I can't read anybody's minds, but I'm sure that somebody has an objection out there saying, wait a second, I thought we were saved by Christ's obedience. I thought we were made pure by his obedience, not our own, right? We're saved by Christ's active obedience, his good works, and we're saved by his passive obedience, his death on the cross. So what is all this nonsense about your obedience purifying your souls? Well, we must remember the imagery we pulled in last week. We said that salvation is a big umbrella term with many different spokes coming out from the center. We've also compared salvation to Noah's Ark. We can look at the Ark as a whole and see, yes, that is our salvation. But we can see it from different perspectives. We can zoom in closely and we can see that Noah's Ark has many different boards. And each of those boards tells us something unique and different about our salvation. So to understand where your obedience plays a factor, we must carefully distinguish which aspect of salvation we're referring to. So which board of the Ark of Salvation is this your obedience connected to? Take a look at verse 23, and you'll see that it comes out of our new birth. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Our obedience is the result of salvation, not the beginning of salvation. So from our new birth, we obtain what the theologians call a perfect righteousness through faith. The big term for that is justification. We are indeed righteous in God's eyes. But the problem? We're not yet righteous in our behavior. Even though we believe in Christ, we still sin after we've put our faith in him. We must change our actions through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to make our characteristics and our behavior righteous and pure as well. As the old hymn tells us, we must trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Now, this term of trusting and obeying and walking in Christ, the big term for that is sanctification. We frequently refer to it as Christ-likeness, But if you know me, I like what the ancients call this term. They call it theosis. A big term, loosely translated, that means deification. 
that we are given the properties of God. Think about eternal life. That is the end of our salvation, eternal life. But we are not eternal beings. Eternality is a property of the divine, yet is given to us. And not just eternality, but all of the divine properties found in Christ are given to us in salvation. We will be transfigured and shine brightly like him. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 2, that talks about this aspect of salvation. It says that we grow up into our salvation. Whenever we are born anew, we are like little babies, but we must become mature adults. We must grow up into our salvation. Paul tells the Romans that every day our salvation grows closer. We get closer to salvation through obedience. And we purify our souls, according to Peter, through obedience to the truth. You see, salvation saves us from death. It saves us from the devil, but it saves us from sin. And sin has been called a sickness in our soul. Sin affects every part of our being, but it especially affects the way that we think and the way that we are in our hearts. Our souls are sick, therefore we sin. But we also say that we sin, and that makes our souls even sicker. Sin is a vicious cycle. Chapter 2, verse 11, talks about sin and the passions of the flesh waging war against your soul. These things keep us from the fullness of salvation. I think about the time that I went to college. I went to a Christian high school, and many of my friends were Christians. But what happened when we all went away to college? Well, we started, you know, drinking it and drunk three or four times a night. We would be hungover on Sunday morning so we couldn't go to church. We would stay up late playing video games and other things we shouldn't have been doing. After two, three, four years of this, we all came back and said, well, I don't feel like God's real. I don't feel close to him. Well, because we were sinning. We weren't in obedience. But take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. And there we're going to see all these sins listed, not pornography, not not video games or drunkenness. It says things like malice, wickedness, evil, that keeps our souls sick. Deceitfulness or cunning, hypocrisy, pretending to be okay whenever everything is not, pretending to be righteous when indeed we are sick, being envious, jealous, bitter, and slandering other people, tearing them down to make ourselves look good. Now, as I'm reading this list, I'm sure you're all thinking of different people. Who do these people sound like? We all know somebody that is malicious and deceitful. We know hypocrites and people who slander. But if we really want to make our souls better, if we really want to be pure material for a spiritual cathedral, We must realize that these verses are talking about ourselves, that they describe our own souls. Our souls are sick, and in our sickness, we are useless bricks. We are that unused product at a construction site that should be thrown into a dump or burned by a 16-year-old. So how do we become useful materials, or how do we become pure according to the text? In this section, the word pure is mentioned three times. In verse 22, we see the the command, having purified your souls. We see the result, that you have a pure heart. And in chapter 2, verse 2, we see that there is a pure spiritual milk. 
Now, in Greek, these three words for pure are all three different words. Uh, The first two words are very similar. Uh, It's the idea of cleansing, of of being dirty but becoming clean, moving from sin to righteousness. That is how we talk about our souls and our heart. But the last one, the pure spiritual milk, it is a different word. And it means that the pure spiritual milk was always pure, unadulterated, never dirty, made clean, but that this pure spiritual milk is actually the cleaning agent that comes into our souls and into our hearts and makes it pure. So what is that pure spiritual milk? It is the abiding word of God. The word remains forever. The word is a purifying agent, and the word, of course, is Jesus Christ. The word is what gives us strength to obey. The word is what is pure and purifies us because it always has been pure and always will be pure. With this purity, we are made to love, which is the second material for our building project. The purified souls are the bricks for the spiritual cathedral of community. And love is the cement that holds these bricks together. Without love, we are merely isolated bricks. Yes, we may be pure and we may be saved, but we are not a community. Love binds us together. It picks up these separate parts and makes them into something more beautiful than if they were to have remained alone. Now, think about it. I don't think any of you have uh, admired the beauty of a single brick. None of you have designed your vacation plans around going and seeing one brick. But many of us go and pay fees to go see a cathedral. We go into a famous building. Why? Because all of these bricks fit together. So we have seen the two materials needed for our spiritual cathedral of community, purified souls and love. But we must continue pressing on and find the builder. So to build and press into our community, We must go to the builder. Stay in chapter 2 and look at verses 4 to 8. Every building needs a builder. Now, I I know that I've only done construction cleanup. I have never built anything that uh, stood. Uh, So from my own personal experience, I don't know that uh, that every building needs a builder, but, but I actually consulted with an architect when preparing this sermon, and I asked an architect, does every building need a builder? And they assured me that it does. So take it on an architect's authority that buildings need builders. Now, in this section, as well as the next uh, section, Peter actually starts stringing together passages from the Old Testament. Uh, This was a technique in ancient rhetoric, uh, let's see if I can pronounce it correctly, called a florilegium, uh, a florilegium or a catena. Uh, Literally, these two words mean like a chain or a string of flowers. So what they do is they take quotes from different places, they put them together, and it's like a string of flowers or a chain of beautiful quotes. So Peter begins this passage with all these excerpts from the Old Testament, and they're strung together like flowers. He gets some of the famous texts like Deuteronomy, Exodus, and Psalms. He even pulls from the prophets like Isaiah and Hosea. And these Old Testament passages point us to the builder, of the spiritual cathedral of community. And that person is the cornerstone, a living stone. And here in the living stone, we see the gospel of humility and exaltation. 
The living stone is rejected by men, thrown out of the construction site like rubbish, as something useless. But we also see his exaltation. He is chosen and precious. This living stone was chosen to be the builder, and not just a builder, but the cornerstone, a part of the structure itself. Now, this is one stone, but this one stone will have multiple results. Those who come to him will experience this stone in one of two different ways. Those who believe in him, why, they will never be put to shame, and they will receive honor. But those who come to the builder, this great cornerstone, and disregard him, they will never enjoy him, and they will stay in the state of sickness. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew. It is the first book, uh, and chronologically, in the series of Narnia. Uh, and in the, the ending chapters, they're, they're there in Narnia for the creation of Narnia. There's a variety of characters. There's this wicked witch. There's the uncle who is the, the magician, uh, his nephew, and some other characters like a cab driver and, and the magician's neighbor and stuff like that. And as Oslin, this, this lion who represents Jesus, is creating this world, he makes some of the animals with the capacity to talk. So there'll be like a bear who can talk and have a friendly conversation and lions and rabbits. And the kids see these animals for what they are, talking animals. And they go and they interact and they have this joyful experience. But the uncle, who is this rationalist and this scientist, he sees these as just terrifying animals. So when the bear walks up to him and says, how do you do? He only hears the bear roaring. And whenever Oslan the lion speaks, he doesn't see Oslan speaking. He sees a terrifying lion roaring. And the same way, whenever we come to Christ, we see people giving these two reactions. They either see him as something that should be rejected and they remain in their drunken stupor like the uncle. Or they come to him as children. And they accept this God that's rejected by the world as the truth. And they find healing. Those who believe in the living stone or the builder will never be put to shame. Because they themselves are made into living stones after the living stone. They are made pure as he is pure. They are made alive as he is alive. And he calls us to become spiritual sacrifices along with him. He calls us to dedicate our entire lives to Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that our bodies are to be living sacrifices. Here Peter tells us that our souls are to be living sacrifices. They're they're not two separate things. We are one person. We have a body, we have a soul, we have a spirit and a mind and a heart. Yes, all of these things, but we're to present our whole offering to Christ. You are a brick and you are offering yourself to the builder. When you come to Christ, you don't make demands the same way a brick doesn't make any demands on the architect. The brick says to the builder, where do you want me? What do you want to do with my life? When you pray and seek God, I believe the Holy Spirit can give you these answers. But I'm going to make maybe a scandalous charge. I believe that God has given the church pastors and leaders to help guide you through this process. Now, pastors and church leaders aren't perfect. They're going to get it wrong, but sometimes they're going to get it right. As a layman, I have experienced it both ways. I've experienced pastors encouraging me to do something or not do something, 
and they were wrong. I felt God pulling me in another direction. But sometimes pastors were encouraging me to do something, and I just didn't want to do it because I was lazy. Uh, One of my pastors in Hong Kong asked me multiple times to do something. Eventually, I gave in, and it was one of the best blessings of my life. So you see that we have this relationship with pastors that is complicated. And our biggest corporate prayer request is for a new pastor, for a new spiritual guide. So yes, we must pray for this person. We must pray that God works in their hearts and brings them to us. But we must also pray for ourselves. We must pray that God changes us and that he prepares our hearts to be led in a new way. We went down to Pivot a couple days ago, a ministry in Bridgeport Rescue Mission. And anybody who's gone on a missions trip, whether it's for years or just a single afternoon, you'll know that you don't go there just to be a blessing, but you are in turn blessed. You go to help change other people, but they actually end up changing you. So as we continue to pray as a church, we must be praying that God changes us and prepares our hearts for this next phase. Pastors are important, but ultimately Christ is the builder of the Christian community. He gives us pastors and church leaders to help the way, but he's also given us a blueprint. So the materials are obviously important. The builder of our community is important, but we must follow the blueprint. So take a look at verses 10 and 12. Everything needs a blueprint. I didn't consult with an architect on this point. I went to my Lego sets. I opened all the boxes and I said, ah, there are indeed blueprints with all of these Lego sets. And even the adult version of Lego's IKEA furniture comes with instructions. (laughs) Anything that we build has a blueprint. Throughout scripture, we see God redeeming people in larger and larger quantities. The story of redemption starts out small with one person, but then it moves to encompass the entire globe. God chose Abraham and Sarah to be his chosen people. He started off slow because they could not have children until they were in their 90s. After several generations, the people of God had grown to 70 people. Better, but not that big. Well, after several more generations, over a half a million Israelites emerge from Egypt. And fast forward to today, when there's well over a billion Christians throughout the world. One of my professors, uh, Ligon Duncan, he explains this movement in the following way. God turned a family into a nation with Abraham. Then he made a nation of the families when they came out of Egypt. With Christ, God made the nations into a family. A family into a nation, a nation of families, and then nations into a family. And just think of us here at Ridgefield Baptist Church. We're like a small, medium-sized church, you know, 125, 150 people. There's about 10 nationalities represented. Uh, We have people from Brazil and Jamaica, uh, the Ukraine, uh, South Korea, and I've been told there's even a few Texans here who don't consider themselves really Americans. Uh, And that was for uh, the Murphys, who are not here today, so uh, I hope they end up watching this online. But just our small church, we support missionaries in Mexico and in Thailand. And people from South Africa have emailed us saying that they listen to some of our sermons on Sermon Audio. 
Now, I, I like this model of expansion or this blueprint of, of expansion, looking at a family nation to a nation of families to families of all the nations, because it shows how these different identities build on one another. Rather than forgetting our past, we inherit our past. Christ is the cornerstone and the builder, but the prophets and the apostles, they are the foundation that we are built upon. Not to mention there's been 2,000 years of previous building called church history. Now, the greatest argument that I have heard for using church history as a, as a resource for mining the gems from church history actually comes from a Baptist minister named Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says that, yes, the Holy Spirit can speak to you directly, but guess what? If the Spirit can speak to you directly, the Spirit can speak to your brothers and sisters directly. And not just to your brothers and sisters now, but to those who have lived before you. And if you want to truly know God, you must press into your community. You must hear what they have to say. This is the blueprint we're called to press into. And Peter shows us that the New Testament church is connected to this expanding blueprint from the Old Testament by referring to the Old Testament. Remember that idea of the florilegium, these strings of flowers Take a look at verses 10 and 11, and you will see that these two verses are packed with Old Testament references. He says that the people of God are the elect exiles. He says that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's possession. People that were not a people, but now are a people. Those who had no mercy, but now have mercy. All of these come from the Old Testament. Take a look at the first one, a chosen race. Now, this is a reference to the nation of Israel. They were a chosen race. Uh, but I really wish the translators would not have translated this way, a, a chosen race. That conjures up all sorts of images like uh, Hitler uh, trying to build a super race and oppressing another, other nations. And this speaks of possibly racial tension that we think of even in our own country. But translating it, Translating it as race is really the best translation, but it conjures up all these images in our head that aren't really helpful. But think about what Paul says about the chosen race of Christianity. He says that there are not many noble that are chosen, there's not many wise, and there's not many strong. In fact, this chosen race is made up of foolish people and the weak. My friend that I referred to earlier that preached from the wrong uh, sermon passage or the wrong manuscript, uh, he just had a son this past week. And he named his son after somebody in church history named St. Lawrence. Uh, has anybody heard of St. Lawrence? Does that sound familiar? All right, so St. Lawrence was actually a deacon uh, in the third century. He was in charge of overseeing the church resources and finances. And it was still a time of, of persecution, in the church. So the, the Roman prefect of the area said that he wanted to come, come by St. Lawrence's parish and see what type of resources he had. He wanted to see what treasures the church had, and he was going to decide what he wanted to take for himself. So St. Lawrence replies to the prefect's request and says, yeah, sure, come, come to the church and I'll show you the great wealth that we have. Well, whenever the prefect arrived, St. Lawrence had lined up all the poorest people in his parish. And he says to the prefect, Behold, these poor persons are the treasures which I promised to show you. 
to which I will add the pearls and precious stones, those widows and pure virgins, which are the church's crown. As you can imagine, the prefect was not amused. St. Lawrence went to his death. He was burned on a grill. They laid him on his back and he was burned. And after he had been there for a little bit, he shouts out, I'm well done on this side. Turn me over and then I'll be ready for you to have a bite. So St. Lawrence is the patron saint of comedians for that final line. So not many wise, not many strong, but at least there's some witty chosen like St. Lawrence. The next term Peter uses is he calls us a royal priesthood. In the book of Exodus, whenever God is giving the Ten Commandments, he says that the entire nation is to be a nation of priests, but they're to be a holy nation, sprinkled with the holy blood of Christ, because they are a people for a possession. And here he references Hosea. Hosea had a child that he named, Not My People. It was a way of God showing that Israel had been rejected. But then Hosea is commanded by God to change the name of that child from not a people to my people. And here we see Peter putting that on these elect exiles. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Hosea had another child called No Mercy, but God had him change his name to mercy. And here Peter is putting this name on the elect exiles, saying, once you had no mercy, now you have mercy. There is a hip-hop artist whose name was Malice. That was his rapping name. But once he became a Christian, he got a new name. He changed his name to No Malice. I think he based it on this passage in Hosea, where he moved from, from having no mercy to mercy, He didn't want to have malice in his heart. He wanted to have no malice. So this blueprint transforms us. We go from no people to God's people, from impure to pure. So in salvation, the builder, the cornerstone, takes the bricks of pure souls and the cement of love. He follows the blueprint and constructs a cathedral of holy, royal priests. But we have not yet reached our end. To build and press into a community, we must remember our purpose. Every building has a purpose. A shed is for storing tools. A bank is for storing money. Gymnasium is for fitness. A coffee shop, of course, is for coffee. Well, what about a cathedral? Well, this passage tells us in verse 10 that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, which is the purpose of a cathedral. G.K. Chesterton says that even in, uh, t- talks about cathedrals. He says sometimes in a cathedral, ministers fail to preach the word. But whenever they fail, the stones of the cathedral cry out, Hosanna. As Christ's chosen race, we are a cathedral called to proclaim the excellencies of our great ancestor. In our great ancestor, every human being is welcome whatever your race may be, for in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. In our great ancestor, every color of skin is welcome. Every language and every tongue spoken is welcome. And in our great ancestor, there is neither male nor female. We are one with and in our great ancestor. As his holy nation, 
We are a cathedral called to proclaim the excellencies of our king. Our exalted king has all power and all authority. And our exalted king has no term limits. Every cathedral has a chair or a throne reserved for the overseer, the shepherd, the king. Christ is the builder, the blueprint, but he is also the purpose. He is the one who sits in the throne of the cathedral. And all the materials of the cathedral are gathered around him to proclaim his excellencies. As Christ's royal priesthood, we are a cathedral called to proclaim the excellencies of our high priest. Our high priest is the perfect sacrifice. His blood is the pure medicine for our ailed souls. And his blood is the power for our obedience. By his sacrificial wounds, we are made pure. Our high priest ever lives to intercede for us. He calls us out of darkness and into a marvelous light. A light so bright and marvelous that no human eye can see. A light brighter than the sun even at creation. And he has called this light to shine into our hearts. That we may be transfigured to shine like him. He is the living stone. And as his living stones... We are called to proclaim the excellencies of this cornerstone, chosen and precious. Now we are still being built together. Christ could come back any day, today or even tomorrow, and the construction of this spiritual cathedral would be complete. But the greater the structure, the more time that is required. So I say, let it be built for the next billion years. Let more bricks be added to the spiritual cathedral of Christ. Let more members be added to our strange community and let more come and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But even in a billion years, there will not be enough time to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Thus, we must await our eternity. For as God instituted a day of rest at the seventh day of creation, so shall he institute a time of eternal rest from our exile when the construction of the spiritual cathedral is finished and we are no longer exiles, when we are no longer strangers and when we are no longer foreigners. Now we have only tasted the goodness of the Lord, but then we shall gather for a great feast, not an awkward banquet where we don't know each other and we try to read each other's name tags, but a banquet of community. With Christ himself, seated in the position of honor, where he will break bread and share the cup of wine and say to all of those who are gathered, welcome to your new community, your true family. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to be that cornerstone for allowing us to be gathered to him, for allowing us to be joined to him, And yet we can come together as brothers and sisters through the pure blood of Christ. We pray that you would transform us and make us pure through the power of the word, that spiritual milk that nourishes our souls. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us, help us to be a cathedral of praise that proclaims your excellencies. All of this we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.